This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Welcome back to part two of Oncologic Emergencies. Today, we're going to be looking at tumor lysis syndrome, hyperviscosity syndrome, and finally neutropenic fever. Let's get started with tumor lysis syndrome. This is due to massive tumor cell lysis with release of potassium, phosphorus, and uric acid into the body. It occurs after treatment initiation for high-grade lymphomas and ALL, but any malignancy with aggressive therapy or a high tumor burden can result in tumor lysis syndrome. Treatment with radiation, chemotherapy, and or steroids is the instigating factor. Patients usually present with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, anorexia, lethargy, low urine output, cramps, and dysrhythmias. These symptoms usually come from the electrolytes that have been released. Hyperkalemia can result in dysrhythmias. Phosphorus elevation can cause calcium phosphate deposits in the kidneys. And high uric acid levels can lead to uric acid precipitation in the renal tubules, renal vasoconstriction, and finally acute kidney injury. Hypocalcemia is the most common electrolyte abnormality, usually due to the release of phosphorus from the dying cells binding free calcium. Two classifications exist via the Cairo-Bishop definition. The first is laboratory, which is two or more lab abnormalities, and the second is clinical tumor lysis syndrome. This is one lab abnormality plus increased creatinine, cardiac arrhythmia, or a seizure. Patients at risk for tumor lysis syndrome are followed very closely by their oncologist, who usually place them on allopurinol for prophylaxis. The most important aspect of this disease is avoiding it in the first place. Adequate hydration and allopurinol are essential in prevention. However, allopurinol only prevents the formation of uric acid, and it does not improve metabolism of the already present uric acid. If you have a patient with established tumor lysis syndrome, there are several avenues to address for management. First is hydration. IV hydration is vital to maintain the GFR of the kidneys. These patients are often dehydrated, so several boluses of IV fluids are necessary to correct the dehydration. Next is electrolyte management, especially hyperkalemia. If the patient has EKG changes or hemodynamic instability, they'll need calcium for cardiac membrane stabilization. They also will need beta agonists and insulin glucose for transcellular shift. For hyperphosphatemia, patients will need a phosphate binder. Renal protection is the next step, which is assisted with your fluid bolses and electrolyte management. Raspiricase is vital in this part of your management, which oxidizes uric acid to allantoin. This metabolite is 10 times more soluble than uric acid. However, raspiricase does not prevent renal failure or lower mortality rates. This medication is dosed at 0.2 mg per kg one time per day. Urinary alkalinization using sodium bicarbonate is controversial with no data to support this, and it's been shown to increase formation of calcium phosphate crystals in the kidneys. Patients may need dialysis, and they typically require an ICU for admission due to monitoring. Let's move on to hyperviscosity syndrome. Hyperleukocytosis occurs with white blood cell counts greater than 50,000, though classically it's greater than 100,000. Leukostasis occurs in the setting of hyperleukocytosis with symptoms. It's seen with acute myeloid leukemia or chronic myeloid leukemia with blast crisis, but it can also occur with other malignancies. Symptoms are due to white blood cells plugging the microvasculature with tissue hypoxemia and cytokine damage. This often results in respiratory and neurologic symptoms. If untreated, mortality at one week reaches 40%. Pulmonary symptoms usually include dyspnea and hypoxia. 
Of note, arterial oxygen levels might be falsely decreased due to the elevated white blood cells that utilize oxygen. Neurologic signs and symptoms include vision changes, headache, dizziness, tinnitus, ataxia, confusion, and even coma. Patients with hyperleukocytosis do have an increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage for at least one week after therapy. Close to 80% of patients will have fever, so most specialists recommend antibiotic treatment. Myocardial ischemia, limb ischemia, and even renal disease can also be present. Labs will show a high white blood cell count, elevated platelets, and hyperkalemia. DIC is also present in about 40% of these patients. Management includes lowering that white blood cell count by cytoreduction, reduction, either with induction chemotherapy or leukophoresis, so you'll need to speak with your oncologist. Fluid resuscitation is also vital to maintain perfusion to end organs. Only chemotherapy has been shown to reduce mortality as opposed to leukophoresis. However, if chemotherapy is not obtainable in an emergent basis, then you'll need to speak with your blood bank and oncologist about leukophoresis. Hydroxyurea is also an option for asymptomatic hyperleukocytosis patients. DIC and tumor lysis syndrome are major risks during the treatment of leukostasis, so obtain a coagulation panel, CBC, renal function panel, electrolytes, and urinalysis. Prophylaxis with alpyrinol with hydration is usually started with cytoreduction treatment to decrease the risk of tumor lysis syndrome. Disposition is really simple. These patients have to be admitted, usually to the ICU. Finally, let's talk about neutropenic fever. This is a commonly treated condition in the ED, and it's a definite oncologic emergency. The cytotoxic medications used to treat malignancy have several different effects on the body besides killing the cancer. The medications affect myelopoiesis, or production of blood and immune cells, and they destroy the integrity of the GI mucosa, which allows for microbe translocation. Neutropenic fever is defined by a single oral temperature of 38.3 degrees Celsius or greater, or a temperature of over 38 for one hour with neutropenia. This is usually an oral temperature unless the patient has mucositis, where you should obtain an axillary or a tympanic temperature. Neutropenia is defined by an absolute neutrophil count of less than 500 or less than 1,000 with an expected decrease of less than 500 over 48 hours. We're most commonly going to see neutropenia 5 to 14 days after a patient receives cytotoxic chemotherapy. Surprisingly, only 20 to 30% of fevers in neutropenic patients are actually due to infection. Bacteria are by far the most common infectious cause, and the species is usually part of the endogenous flora in up to 80% of patients. While gram-positive bacteria are the most common causes of infection, infections with gram-negative organisms are usually more severe, and they're associated with more resistant organisms. Fungal infections can also occur, and these are more common in high-risk patients with prolonged antibiotic use and increasing number of treatment cycles. Most viral pathogens affect those high-risk patients and are due to reactivation rather than primary infection. Management involves fast diagnosis of neutropenic fever, as well as a close evaluation for the source of infection. The lungs and urinary tract are the most common sites, followed by the GI tract, bloodstream, and skin, but it isn't always straightforward. Because of their reduced inflammatory response, patients just often don't have classic findings of infection, and they may only present with fever. A patient with cellulitis may have real subtle redness, and a patient with pneumonia may just have some mild respiratory symptoms and a negative chest x-ray. Do a good head-to-toe exam looking for that source. Look for mucositis, mucromycosis, and malignant otitis externa. Listen to their heart for a murmur and listen to their lungs. When it comes to the abdominal exam, you need to think about tiflitis. This is a bacterial or fungal invasion of the bowel wall 
that is often associated with abdominal pain, vomiting diarrhea, and it's followed by peritonitis and sepsis because of bowel wall necrosis. If the patient has any lines or ports, look closely for any evidence of infection. Finally, visually inspect the perirectal area. Once you have that patient with confirmed febrile neutropenia, the goal is to administer broad-spectrum empiric antibiotics within one hour of diagnosis and also provide resuscitation. If the patient has an unknown absolute neutrophil count and no evidence of sepsis, you can hold antibiotics until you confirm neutropenia. When it comes to the microbes, follow your local antibiograms and institutional protocols. You will need to provide an antibiotic that covers pseudomonas, but monotherapy coverage of pseudomonas is just as effective as dual therapy, so you can use an agent like cefepime or piperacillin tazobactam. There are some patients who will need antifungal therapy. This includes patients with tiflitis and those who have been on antibiotics for four days and still haven't improved. When it comes to MRSA, not all patients need coverage with a medication like Vanc or linazolid. You should cover for MRSA in patients with a known history of MRSA infection, if they're on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis, if they have a soft tissue infection, severe pneumonia, a bloodstream infection, mucositis, a line infection, or hemodynamic instability. We haven't talked too much about this yet, but another important aspect is source control. If there's an intra-abdominal infection, speak with your surgical specialist. If there's an IV line that's grossly purulent, it probably needs to be removed. If it's not grossly infected, but just has some subtle erythema, obtain cultures from the access site and discuss this site with the oncologist and the admitting clinician before it's removed. The infection may just clear with antibiotics. When it comes to patient disposition, most of these patients are probably going to be admitted. If they're septic, they're on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis, or if you think there's an antibiotic-resistant organism, they'll need to be admitted. There are some patients who might be appropriate for discharge after you discuss the patient with the oncologist and the infectious disease specialist. The patient will also need IV antibiotics, and they'll need to be observed for at least four hours after antibiotics. There are several risk scores that can help with this decision, including the mask risk index used for both solid and hematologic malignancies, and then the clinical index of stable febrile neutropenia score, or the CISNI score. This is used for those with solid malignancy. Both of these are available in MD-Calc. A mass score of 21 or greater has a sensitivity and specificity of around 70% for determining who is low risk and might be able to make it at home. The CISNI score is more specific in determining low risk status when compared to the mass score. A CISNI score between 0 and 2 predicts low risk for adverse outcome, but if a patient has a score of 3 or greater, they'll need to be admitted. The major consideration when it comes to disposition is that these scores can't replace clinical judgment and you need to speak with the patient's oncologist. The patient must be well-appearing, be reliable, be able to return to the hospital, not live alone, and have follow-up. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.